Hello and welcome to Oats for Breakfast. Oats for Breakfast is affiliated with The Socialist Project, an eco-socialist organization based in Toronto. I'm your co-host, Asiya. And my name is Omer. We're interviewing William Robinson on his new book, We Will Not Be Silenced, The Academic Repression of Israel's Critics. The book is a collection of uh, essays written by people who have been targeted for speaking in solidarity with the Palestinians or for organizing campus events. And so it's, it mainly deals with uh, engagement uh, with the question of Israel-Palestine on university campuses and the efforts taken to, to shut down and to, to punish people who are speaking out in solidarity with Palestinians. There's a very clear organizational effort to silence people who even deploy very mild critiques of the state of Israel, which uh, William Robinson goes through with us during his interview. And Robinson himself has a chapter in the book that documents his own experience. So he, in 2009, he came under fire while he was teaching a class. He sent an email to his students that contained a couple of articles that that were critical of Israel. And the university basically tried to fire him. We, in, in our interview with uh, William Robinson, we talked to him about having a smear campaign launched against him. We talked to him also about the relationship between the Israeli state and the American empire. And I think that we, the, the whole interview kind of ties back uh, neatly to the nature of free speech and what does it mean to have free speech in academia and beyond. So, should we roll the interview? Yeah, let's cut to the interview. William Robinson teaches in the sociology department at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He is a scholar of Latin America and capitalist globalization. His most recent book, co-edited with Miriam Griffin, is called We Will Not Be Silenced. The Academic Repression of Israel's Critics. Thanks for joining us, Will. My pleasure. So uh, while I was reading uh, your book, the, one of the things that I learned from it, I learned a lot, but one of the things that I learned uh, is that if I ever want to get a job in the academy, uh, I should never talk about uh, Israel and Palestine. And here we are doing this interview. So all my hopes of getting a job at the university are, of course, not going to come true. Well, so if the Zionist lobby works the way it's supposed to work, that's correct. You'll be blacklisted. Great. Oh, well, I just want to say I fully support the state of Israel. <laughs> the depressing Israel's way to best. start the interview. Yeah, great. Okay, so but... But uh, it doesn't work. All, it doesn't work the way it's supposed to work in many cases, including my own. So let's, uh, let's begin with that. So in 2009, you did become the target uh, of a smear campaign. Can you tell us what happened? Sure. <clears throat> well, was, uh, Israel-Palestine in the Middle East isn't my area of specialization, although I've s- supported Palestinian freedom ever since I'm a teenager and learned about that issue. It hasn't been really part of my public projection simply because I've been involved in Latin America and other part of the world. But in late 2008, Israel launched one of its regular massacres 
in Gaza. Uh, they called it Operation, if I remember the name properly, Operation Cast Lead. Um, <clears throat> killed and injured thousands of Palestinians. The whole operation lasted uh, something like five weeks, and it was the lead up to Barack Obama taking office in the presidency. Israel wanted to set that as the basis for what it was going to be its relationship with the new president of the United States. So I, in the midst of this massacre taking place in Gaza, I was teaching a course titled Sociology of Globalization, and part of that course looks at global conflicts, uh, global liberation struggles, etc., global politics. And so I sent to my students some readings about this in order to discuss in class this, um, this Israeli massacre. One of the readings was by a Jewish-American journalist who had visited the occupied territories to write for a Jewish-American magazine, uh, pro Israeli Zionist magazine, and she was so shocked by what she saw with the occupation that she wrote against the occupation, and she was promptly fired from from her magazine. So I sent that article to my uh, students, and I sent another article. I don't even remember the details of that article, uh, but mainly I also wrote a commentary in the first paragraph. I said, well, you know, this is um, um, Israel's Warsaw. Because as many of your listeners will know, and maybe others won't know, the Palestinians in Gaza are sealed off. They can't leave. Mm -hmm. It's a giant open-air concentration camp. They can't leave by the ocean or they'll be shot by the Israeli Navy. They can't cross into uh, Israel. They can't cross into Egypt. And anything that goes in and out is totally controlled by uh, by Israel and the subject to, to uh routine massacres uh, and attacks. So, And I think also like over 50% of people there are under the age of 18 or something like that. Yes, they say it's so youth. It's a child prison. Right. And unemployment is over 50% of all, not just youth unemployment. And malnutrition is skyrocketing. It's a humanitarian disaster. Um, it's uh, levels of poverty and misery rival any other place on the planet. But anyway, this was to get discussion going in my classroom. And I, this was literally the first day of class. Right, the first day of the new quarter. This was uh, January two thousand nine. So, very first class of eighty students. Don't know any of them. Two students are are Jewish American, and they didn't like that material I sent, so they left. I didn't know who they were. I didn't see them leave. I mean, this is you know, imagine the first day of class and eighty students. And about a week later, I got a letter from the Anti Defamation League. They sent me a letter, the local chapter, uh, saying. Uh, we object to what you did, and you need to apologize. Um, and of course, I didn't uh, apologize. Mm. Um, and and then I, when I refused to apologize, they launched this national international campaign. They first accused me of being uh, anti-Semitic, um, and then when they learned that my father is of Jewish origin, they accused me of being what they call a self-hating Jew. But here's the more important point to the story. We have at the University of California an academic senate. And as part of that academic senate, we have what's called a charges committee. The charges committee is in charge of receiving complaints from students if they believe professors have violated their fundamental rights. For instance, if a professor sexually assaults or sexually harasses a student or if a professor grades a student based on uh, racism, for instance, race, race and ethnic considerations rather than academic criteria, these are violations of the faculty code of conduct and a student would bring this complaint to the charges office, the charges office would investigate. In the worst case, you are fired from the university. Mm. There actually was a case of sexual harassment where a professor was fired. Um, so these two students did not go to the charges committee. They went to the, um, the outside, an outside organization, which was 
the Anti-Defamation League and the Simon Weissenfeld Center. And they were instructed by these organizations to go to the Charges Committee and lodge a formal complaint, mm. which they did in absurd complaint. Um, now, it should have been dismissed as absolute farce, mm-hmm. uh, but it was pursued because there are significant Zionist forces in the University of California and because the university was very scared to challenge the, the, the uh, Israel lobby. Part of what's going on here is that there are um, big donors that are linked to the Jewish community and to the Zionist, uh, Zionist, the Israel lobby uh, organizations. And mm-hmm. they threatened to withdraw their donations to the University of California, Santa Barbara, if I wasn't prosecuted and, and fired. So this went on for about six months. My graduate students, undergraduate students organized. They formed something called the Committee to Defend Academic Freedom. It's actually still on the website. You can see all of the documents from those uh, six months. It eventually became an international campaign worldwide to... Um, to have these charges dropped against me, and we won. In the end, we we won. The the pressure on the university was overwhelming. So actually, there is hope that you'll get a job. <laughs> you just need an international campaign to promote <laughs> your employment, Umer. So everyone listening, start writing some emails. All right. Yeah, let's to your get a university in started, Canada, yeah. please. Um, you mentioned uh, a little bit about funding and money. Where's the money going? Like, what's the money? trail look like. Right. Yeah, those are those are significant but tangential. Let's look at the larger picture with the Israel lobby is and the US Israeli relationship. There's such a powerful constituency, pro-Israel, pro-Zionist constituency in the United States for two different reasons. One reason is that after World War II, the United States became the world superpower, and the United States swept into the Middle East and occupied the vacuum left by the withdrawal of the French and British colonialists. And and um its whole strategy on the Middle East was predicated on a steadfast alliance with Israel. Israel would represent U.S. and global corporate interests in the Middle East, the political projection of U.S. power in the Middle East, military power, political power, but also it would be the um, beachhead for advancing transnational corporate interests in the Middle East. So that's the origins of the alliance between Israel and the United States. But what has also propped up that alliance is that the, you know, the Zionist project is one that has manipulated world jewelry. This is what uh, Norman Finkelstein, the brilliant Jewish-American scholar, he calls this the Holocaust industry, the, the political and cultural and historical and religious manipulation of Jewish suffering. So the whole Zionist project was predicated on, after the Holocaust, and all this mass of suffering by the Jews, to identify that suffering and alleviation of that suffering with the creation of a so-called Jewish homeland, which becomes Israel. But Finkelstein has a because his his argument is a bit more specific. He says he dates it to 1967 and the you know the expansion of Israel. Yeah, I think he mentions that before that date, the Holocaust was hardly ever mentioned in American popular culture, and now there is somewhat something of the Holocaust industry. That's I think 1967 was a turning point, but you really can't separate it from 1948. Absolutely, absolutely not. I wouldn't agree with that. But I want to get back to the story of the Israel lobby in the United States, the Zionist project for a long sweep of history, has been able to manipulate Jewish suffering, Jewish identity, conflate religion with a political project of colonialism. The Zionist project is a project of colonialism. It's it's the last remains of the 19th and early 20th century world colonialism, and is, is Israel, is, Israel is Palestine. And so Zionist project was able to gain the support of a significant portion of world Jewelry, and especially in the United States, which has the largest Jewish population outside of Israel. And 
It was only with the Holocaust that the Zionist project um, gained mass support and when it aligned with first British and then U.S. imperialism in the Middle East. So the second component of the Israel lobby in the United States is a very powerful um, Jewish American community which moved from being poor and discriminated against to being the most successful ethnic group in the United States in terms of socioeconomic status. Um, and the Zionist movement was able to organize that base, but not just that base, the other part of the of the base of, of pro-Zionist and pro-Israeli policy in the United States is um, the a Christian fundamentalist movement. Christian fundamentalist ideology says that first the Jews need to return to um, Israel and then um, and then they need to be destroyed and then and then the be, world will end and, and then the world will end and then Christ will be resurrected and so forth. So the so the so mass social base is the Jewish Jewish American community, which is now split, actually, significantly split, um, the Christian fundamentalist community, and of course, capital and um, the political elite, and their strategic uh, orientation towards the Middle East. So, so I, it seems like we're kind of getting into the, the uh, broader question of, of the place of Israel in global politics, and especially why it gets so much support from the US. But before we get there, can we talk a little bit more about the Israel lobby itself and what, who are its constituents, you know, why, why is it now, especially since the 90s, you see this uh, Christian Zionist element becoming perhaps even bigger, certainly as a, as something that has a base much bigger than the, the original sort of Jewish organizations that are associated with it. The Christian fundamentalist base for the Israel lobby is probably at this point as important or even more important than the Jewish American base for that lobby. And that's in part because you need to see how the, the right wing has been mobilized in the United States. Uh, and, and that mobilization has has taken place a lot through, through uh, religious Christian fundamentalism and the religious right, the Christian right. And, and so that's really central to the whole power structure in the United States, to the right, right wing project in the United States, and support for U.S. of very reactionary and far right U.S. foreign policy of intervention. It was Christian fundamentalism that provided a central plank, for instance, to U.S. intervention in Latin America in the late 20th century right through to the 21st century, um, for, for instance. So that's part of the Israel lobby, but specifically hands-on organizations. The, the series of uh, Jewish organizations and a series of Israeli organizations, and the most powerful being the um, APAC, the American-Israeli uh, Political Action uh, Committee. Um, and so it brings together these different organizations which are very powerful financially, and they go after, in first in the political system, they go after any elected, elected official who is critical of Israel or who attempts to change U.S. policy of steadfast support for Israel. So they will fund or will actually boycott and undermine the funding of any candidate for Congress or for local government that speaks out against Israel. The APAC was very instrumental in changing the laws so that you can donate to a political campaign anywhere in the United States. You don't have to be in that constituency. For instance, previously, if you were uh, in New York, you could donate to New York camp electoral campaigns, but not to an electoral campaign of a candidate in California. The APAC was very instrumental in changing that. So anywhere in the United States, you can fund campaigns anywhere else in the United States. That allowed far right-wing Zionists such as uh, Adelson, um, Sheldon Adelson, which was now a big supporter of Trump, extreme right wing and extremely very behind the move of the U.S. Embassy to uh, to Jerusalem, can now fund any candidate anywhere in the United States. And so the lobby can fund any candidate. So there's virtually 
impossible until recently, unless there's some countermass mobilization to get elected to the U.S. Congress or local uh, governments if you come out uh, in favor of Palestinian freedom. So that's in the political system how the Israel lobby works. Now, in the academic system, any academic and also journalists. So you have the same thing with journalists. Uh, reporters are scared to either they self-censor, and that's another way that that, that um, the lobby works. They take particular they take someone and make a test case out of someone a very that's what they did with me right a very um, public campaign against an individual the individual might lose or might win in my case I won I'm still a professor at the University of California but that public campaign with so much publicity uh, has a chill chilling factor it's meant to chill uh, open debate about uh, Israel Palestine and it's meant to chill any open support for Palestinian freedom so there's a lot of self-censorship going on. The same thing with journalists. Journalists have been fired, have lost their job, have been uh, not been allowed to publish when they talk about Israel. And there have been big cases with journalists who have been persecuted. So other journalists self-censor. And that's how that works. Now, it's the same thing in academia. They go after one academic and put all of their resources into vilifying and demonizing that academic, trying to, trying to ruin his or her career, uh, shaming them, et cetera. And then whether, whether it's successful or not, other academics self-censor. So you have this, it's a campaign to silence any criticism of Israel and to suppress the development of support for Palestinian freedom struggle. And so the funding for all of this activity, <clears throat> are you are you saying that it comes primarily from just rich individual Zionists located in the United States? It's less the funding. Yes, funding comes from um, rich Zionists such as Sheldon Alstein, comes for, can come from the Anti-Defamation League, but it's not so much the funding. Mm -hmm. It's more the mobilization and the threats against university administrations, a threat against newspapers, editors, for instance, if the journalists cover something which is pro-Palestinian, uh, the threat against um, against politicians, if they're actually in there, yes, there's funding. Mm -hmm. Because you get funded if you're pro-Israeli, pro-Zionist, and you they try and block your funding and uh, vilify you if you're pro-Palestinian. But is more the level of organization grounded in, as I mentioned, the three-pronged social base, the U.S. state, defending global capitalism in the Middle East, on the one hand, based on the alliance with Israel. Secondly, the Jewish American community, or that portion of it, which is Zionist. And third, the Christian fundamentalists, and then generally the right wing. So you the three of them coming together, that's organizationally through their networks. So there's a whole series of organizations um, that are, operate on campuses. Uh, one I mentioned is Anti-Defamation League. They've come together now. It's called the Israel on Campus Coalition, I believe. Um, and brings together some 30, 35, 40 Zionist organizations. And they network and they identify particular targets and then they launch these campaigns. So that's how the, the lobby actually functions. And they have a, a handbook that they give. The Hasbara, Hasbara handbook. Yeah, what is, that, what is that handbook? This is a handbook that tells, um, that instructs students or anyone from the Israel lobby how to organize a campaign against individuals who might be speaking out against Israel or in favor of, of Palestinian freedom. And what's remarkable, and I cite, you know, I discussed this in the in the introduction to the to the book, the 
handbook reads exactly as Joseph Goebbels. You know, your listeners on Joseph Goebbels was the Nazi minister of propaganda. And he famously, he said, it doesn't, you tell a lie. It's the big lie. And you repeat it over and over and eventually it'll be accepted as truth. This handbook actually says it doesn't matter if you tell the truth or not. It doesn't matter what you say. Just repeat it over and over and over. It also, and this is open. I mean, the handbook is open. It's shocking that they would just, you know, have this easily available on the internet, their own handbook, and distribute it. It also The handbook also says, um, don't engage in the actual substantive dimensions of the debate. Mm-hmm. Just use emotional manipulation and, and, and vilification and so forth. Uh, something I thought was really interesting is um, the handbook kind of instructed people to associate the person with just like a bad word, like anti-Semitic, and exactly. that would be enough to discredit everything else they've said just based on that negative Exactly, exactly. Um, but let's talk about anti-Semitism for a minute, because this is um, incredible manipulation of the Zionist project, is to conflate criticism of Zionism of the Israeli and the Israeli apartheid with anti-Semitism, which, of course, as is, is absolutely absurd. And imagine you um, criticize the Iranian state or the Saudi state and accuse you of being anti-Muslim, or you criticize... That's why I never criticize the Saudi state. I don't want to be Islamophobic. Well, there you go. That's how that's how it works. Yeah. And so it's also is, just a great state. Yeah, it's a really nice place. Everyone should go there. Yeah, and Sorry, then after no. Israel, that's next in line. Um, <laughs> so l- let me show you how this works. You can, if you see through the propaganda, I mean, it's so blatant. But if you don't see it, you fall into the trap. So in 2009, there was a military coup d'état in Honduras. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mel Zelaya was the president who was overthrown. That coup d'état, of course, was backed by the United States. And, of course, backed by Israel. You have to understand that Israel uh, props up every military dictatorship in Latin America. It organizes death squads and, and arms death squads and trains death squads throughout Latin America. That's absolutely nothing new. Hmm. Uh, for that, it's, it's whole foreign policy. The Israeli state propped up the South African apartheid regime and transferred nuclear technology so South Africa built nuclear weapons under the white racist apartheid regime. Okay, But where I'm getting at with Honduras, this particular case, so Mel Zelaya was overthrown. And almost immediately when he was overthrown, the Israelis came in and the Israelis started training escorts and started arming them. And people were killed in the streets and killed overnight and disappeared. And Salaya from exile denounced that. He said Israel is supporting this military coup and the Israelis are organizing death squads. And so immediately... Israel said, oh, Mel Zelaya is anti-Semitic. And that changed the whole discourse and the whole public discussion. Suddenly he said, no, I, you know, I have a lot of Jewish friends and I'm not anti-Semitic and so forth. And so, that, that, so you can see how this mani- the manipulation of the Israel lobby works internationally, uh, globally. Changed the whole, the whole framework of the whole narrative to Mel Zelaya being defensive and explaining that he's not really anti-Semitic. So why is uh, Palestine such a hot-button issue on campuses? Um, why is it when it comes to academic freedom and just freedom of speech more generally, why is Palestine uh, the exception? I know we've talked about the Israel lobby, but there are many things. I mean, you know, it's not as if the American state doesn't support, for instance, what's happening in Honduras. I mean, you, I'm sure you've taught classes about Honduras and there hasn't been this controversy. Yeah. You know, it's a really good question. And I don't have a fully worked out answer because this is really remarkable. I mean, it's remarkable what you're pointing out. But if in if in the United States there was a lobby, a very wealthy and a powerful lobby involving millions of people uh, in support of Honduran democracy, you might have a different situation. And I think it's really it's a unique case if you look around around the world in which a the lobby in defense of Zionism and 
Israel is so well situated within the U.S. political system mm -hmm. and the U.S. corporate economy, right? Uh, we wanted to ask you a question about free speech more generally. So you see people like Trump kind of hating on liberals for their obsession perhaps for political correctness and, you know, appropriate discourse. And so the right often presents itself as a valiant defender of free speech. Um, but we're seeing here that, you know, in certain cases, n namely the Israeli case, it's not defending free speech. So how do you think the left should react to this? Like, should we be giving up our own commitment to uh, free and open discussion? Or how should we approach this issue? Should, should we try no platforming pro-Zionists or, or should we yeah. defend their ability to, to be Zionists? Yeah, to, I mean, this is a very controversial and sensitive issue. But I think that if we take to a full extent an argument that the free speech of those that are not standing up for people's freedom and that are defending oppression should be suppressed, then we're opening ourselves up to being repressed by the, by the state in the name of the very argument that we're using. So it's a very slippery slope when we start saying that we should ban the free speech of those that are, that are representing the oppressors. Right? Um, I'm, there are some exceptions when that free, free speech of the right wing or um, groups are calling for violence, for violent attacks, for instance, that needs to be suppressed. But I really think it's a slippery slope to say who should be, I don't think that's the way to attack, in this case, the Zionist lobby, or for that matter, uh, to push forward support for any just struggles to suppress opposition to those the free speech rights of those that are opposing those struggles. I think we need mass mobilization to drown out the voices, for instance, in this case of the Zionists, with pro-Palestinian voices and with voices of truth and, 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 um, and clarity. Wow. Thank yeah. you so much, William. Thanks so much for talking. It's my pleasure. So in this podcast episode, obviously we don't provide a definitive answer to all of the questions that have to do with free speech and the left's orientation towards it. But I do think that uh, I do think it's interesting that it's interesting to consider the idea that if we stand against the principle of free speech, we open ourselves up to you know to people who say, well, pro-Palestine speech and you know, if you want to say anti-Israel speech is just hate speech. Yeah, I mean, to see the challenge of free speech played out in Israel-Palestine is a great kind of soundboard. Okay, so thanks once again for listening to Oats for Breakfast. Since we're now blacklisted from any gainful employment, we would really appreciate it if you went over to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast and contributed $5 as our patron. Uh, we hope you subscribe to the podcast and like us on Facebook. We have a Facebook page now. Yeah, we have a Facebook page and we deploy some really great memes and videos. So make sure to hit us up there. We're going to try to keep people posted through our Facebook about some of the upcoming episodes we have planned and people we're interviewing. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email us at podcast at socialistproject.ca. And if you'd like to learn more about The Socialist Project, you can go to www.socialistproject.ca. 
Do you have to put in the www? I wish I hadn't because I already have a hard time enunciating my words and three letters, one after the other, so it's tough. Okay, well, uh, we'll see you next time. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye.